So the Holy Spirit comes, right? Acts chapter 2, that's the beginning of the church. For about the next 300 years of history, that's a period of time that you might call the early church. And those were, were wonderful days, difficult days in those first 300 years. Because in that period of time, there were people early on who had actually met Jesus. I mean, like laid eyes on him, talked to him like this, right? A little later on, there were people who had talked to people who knew Jesus like that. And so in those early days of the church, the teachings of Jesus, they were really fresh. And the teachings of the apostles were really fresh. And because of that, the gospel is spreading. People are coming to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. But at the same time, the gospel is spreading, so is persecution. God's people, followers of Jesus, are being persecuted. They're, they're being tortured. In many cases, they're being killed because of their faith in Christ. Well, those days of the early church continue. And in my mind, I kind of bring those to an end around 312 A.D., and about 312, uh, the Roman emperor Constantine, he said that he had a vision of a cross in the sky, and he says that that's when he gave his life to Christ, that he converted to Christianity. There's some dispute. Did that really happen, or, or was this just politically motivated? I don't know. I'll let you kind of do your own research into all of that. But what follows that, that is undisputed, is in 380 A.D., the Roman emperor declared Christianity to be the official religion of the entire Roman Empire. That means on that day, the minute the emperor, with the stroke of a pen, signed Christianity into law as the official state religion, everybody in the Roman Empire became a Christian. But you know what I mean by that. They didn't become a Christian in the terms of salvation, trust in Christ, sins have been forgiven. They became labeled a Christian. They, they became part of this Christian empire, but it was just a label. It was just cultural. It was just political. Well, the upside of Christianity becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire is it officially brought to an end all the persecution of the Christians. The downside of it becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire is that now Christianity had gone from being a message of how a sinner can be forgiven and can have a relationship with God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Now it's gone from that to merely being a state-sanctioned religion. Here's the deal. In the early days of the church, Satan couldn't kill the church, so instead he hijacks it. And he tries to make it political. He tries to make it uh, a, 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 about the government, right? And st Satan's still trying to use that tactic today in many ways. And I just want to be clear about this. The church will never need a government or politics to save the church. The church has a savior. We're not looking for another one. We don't need another one. Now, um, later on, uh, during that time, people certainly, they were coming to know the Lord, but they're kind of swimming upstream uh, in that culture and everything that was going on in those days. They were really truly being born again, but some maybe not so much. It was just merely political. So by the time you get to, let's say, the 700s, about 300 years later, man, the church isn't what it was before. St. Boniface, in fact, there's a quote from him. He says this. I think this kind of says a lot 
about what transpired in those few hundred years after it became the national religion. He says, once our priest had chalices of wood and hearts of gold. Chalices would be the cup of communion, right? He said, once our priest had chalices of wood and hearts of gold, but now our priests have chalices of gold and hearts of wood. Something had shifted among the leaders in the church at that time. They had really kind of become the elites of society. They were the rich and they were the comfortable. They were the secure because they had been shacking up with the state for so long. A few hundred years later in 1054, the church split. And it really just kind of split right down the globe into the eastern side of the church and the western side of the church. Those on the eastern side became known as the Eastern Orthodox churches. Think Russian Orthodox, think Greek Orthodox. And they were headquartered in um, Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. The western side, they split off into what's uh, called the Roman Catholic Church because they were headquartered out of Rome, of course. And so here's what I want to say, because so much of what I need to say in this sermon series, today I am starting a new sermon series called The Five Solas, and I'll explain a little bit more about that later. But the reason I'm having to give all of this history to you today is because this uh, idea of these five solas comes out of history. It comes out of what's called the, the Protestant Reformation. And so to be able to clearly help you understand what I'm trying to convey today, i got to give you some historical perspective for that. And because that comes out of the Western side of the church split, the Roman Catholic side, then I'm going to talk a little bit about Catholicism in that day. And I want to be clear about this. I, I am not against Catholic people, okay? I, but I, I am for truth, and I am for history. I want us to learn our history, lest we... Are doomed to repeat it, right? And so, like you all, I have family and friends uh, in the Catholic Church, a lot of people in our church from the Catholic Church, a lot of friends and family in the Catholic Church. I met a lady for the first time, no kidding, after the first service today from New Jersey, and she said, hey, I'm a Catholic, and that was the best message you could have preached for me to be here today. She said, I loved it. I said, well, good, because I was a little nervous. Like, if you, you know, your first time, you might not come back. And I want you to come back, and I want you to hear my heart. But I want to I set it up truthfully for you today, okay? So having said all of that, by the time we get to, let's say, 1500 A.D., the Roman Catholic Church, the western side of the church now, man, it, it was off the rails, now, the Pope wouldn't agree with that at that time. He would have said, well, I decide where to put the rails. So how could we be off the rails if I decide where the rails kind of go? The, everybody was just supposed to kind of fall in line with what he said. And, and the church leaders and the Pope at that time had that kind of authority, and they had that kind of control in large part because people didn't have Bibles of their own at that time. And if they did happen to have a Bible, it was only in a dead language, Latin. They weren't able to read it. They weren't able to understand that for themselves. So without having a copy of God's Word, they were at the mercy, right, of church leaders. They were at the mercy of what they taught or the traditions that were being passed down. The people weren't being taught, this is what the Bible says. They were being taught, this is what this man says or this is what this group of people say. So by this time, the doctrines and teachings of the church, they weren't coming from the Word of God. They were coming from other people. Several things come from this. First is this. Immorality in society exploded. 
obviously, because nobody was living in the light of the word of God. Now, as odd as it may sound, this explosion of immorality actually turned out to be big business for the church. Because here's what the church started doing. They started selling these things called indulgences. What this is, is for a sum of money, you could buy this indulgence. It was kind of like a certificate that uh, would give you the freedom to indulge in some sin and face less punishment for it down the road, face less consequences for it down the road. In other words, the church was kind of teaching, you can buy forgiveness from God. You can buy your salvation from God. So whereas in a moment ago, first song, we we're like, uh, lay, check your shame at the door, right? That's not what they were proclaiming. They're like, no, bring all your shame here because the more the better, right? Because you're going to want to buy some of these indulgences. And so they weren't just buying indulgences for sins that they had committed in the past to try to get forgiveness for those. They started buying indulgences for sins they haven't even committed yet. Like I'm going out Friday night, Right? And so I need to buy some of those indulgences. Well, then the church realizes, hey, listen, if we're making this kind of money off everybody that's alive, think about what we could do if we started selling indulgences for dead people. So the Roman Catholic Church believes that there's this place called purgatory. That's not found in Scripture, by the way. And so they started telling people, listen, if you've got a friend or a family member that's in purgatory and you want to help them level up, and eventually get out of that and get to heaven, you can buy some indulgences on their behalf for them to help them out. So if you really love grandpa, right, here's how you can try to help grandpa get to heaven. And so that's sort of what was going on. And one of the most famous seller of these indulgences was a man by the name of Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel went around from village to village, city to city, and, and stirring up guilt and shaming people and then offering to sell them all the indulgences they wanted. And he was famous for this line, or infamous, for this line in his sermons that said this, When a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Right? Now, here's where I want to pivot. How did the church go from that really being what the church was offering 500 years ago to where we are today? What, what brought about such a massive change in that period of history? And there's really one name that stands out. It's not the only name, but the name that stands out is the name Martin Luther. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King or Martin Luther King Jr. That's 400 years later. This is Martin Luther. Martin Luther was born in Germany, where Chris is going to be going soon. You ever been to any of the uh, historical sites related to Luther? Yeah, cool. I'm jealous, man. So he was born... Uh, in Germany in 1483, and he became a monk, and he was a rising star in the church. And he had a lot of passion, tremendous intellect. He gets assigned to teach at a, a university there in Germany, and he gets assigned to teach out of the book of Romans. And so he has this crazy idea, if I'm going to teach the book of Romans, I probably should study the book of Romans. And so he starts to study the book of Romans. And through that book, God begins to show Luther so much of what was happening in the church at that day wasn't at all consistent with what is in the Bible, in the word of God. So Luther begins to teach and preach about what he's learning from the word of God. 
And this wasn't what was going on. I mean, when you went to Mass back in those days, it was in Latin. You didn't know what anybody was saying. But now Luther is speaking the language of the people, and he's explaining the truth that's in God's Word, and people are following him. People are listening to him. He's growing in popularity, and they're realizing this is not what the church is teaching. Luther is gripped by the truth of God's Word that says a sinner's made right with God by grace through faith. But that's not what the church was teaching. Plus what you do, plus what you participate in, plus what you purchase. None of the rules that the church had in place about forgiveness of sin or salvation, none of those could be found in the Bible. And here's the thing that Luther was about. Luther loved the church and Luther wasn't looking to burn it down. He wasn't looking to tear it down. He wasn't looking to split off and do something different. He just wanted the church to embrace the truth of God's word. Anything that wasn't right, he wanted to see it corrected. In fact, for a time in his life, Luther thought the Pope's going to be happy with me because he of all people is going to want to make sure that, that we get this right. So Luther's just trying to have a conversation, right, about this stuff. So that desire leads him on October the 31st 1517. October 31st is still on your calendar. It probably will say Reformation Day. We recognize that on our calendar, that that's the day that Luther did this. This is why I'm preaching this this month, because there's five Sundays in October. We'll finish this October 30th, and the next day is Reformation Day. So that's why I'm preaching this series for the next five weeks. Here's what happened. October 31st, 1517, Luther puts on the door of the Wittenberg Castle there in that town where he was teaching what we now call the 95 Thesis. Those were 95 statements, some short, some a paragraph or so in length. These were 95 things that he wanted to have a conversation with, with the church to say, hey, this is what we're doing and this is what we're practicing and this is what we're teaching. But that doesn't match up with the Bible. It doesn't match up with scripture. So can we talk about that? This idea that some of you have seen where, you know, he's in his robe and he's got the nail and the hammer and there's this piece of parchment on the door. It probably wasn't like that. This was the social media place of their day. The doors of that church. If you were posting something, advertising something, calling people to have a conversation, to have a debate, whatever it may be, that's how you would get the word out. Some of us that went to college in the 90s, we remember hallways, right, where people just pasted stuff up and posted, there's a party here, there's a class you can sign up here, right? Anybody old enough to remember those days? We actually used tape and paper and pens and Sharpies and stuff. Well, that's kind of what Luther was up to on that day. He just wanted to have a conversation. There's, there's some things here that we need to address. Well, here's what happens. Because at about that same time, some modern technology was taken off called the printing press. Luther's sermons and his lessons, his writings, they get picked up. They start coming off the printing press. And they start getting circulated all throughout Europe. And that message is resounding with the masses. For most of them, they've never heard this message before. They've never heard the gospel before. And some of them are truly coming to know Jesus. Others are following Luther just because they're anti-authority, right? There's like, yeah, rebel, let's follow this guy, I'm sure. But back in Rome, the Pope is kind of feeling like this punk monk has given me a black eye. And not only that, because his popularity is swelling, that's cutting into the revenue stream of the church. So now the Pope's not happy about that. 
So is Luther going to get what he wants? Is there going to be a conversation to be had and now an opportunity to right the ship? Well, the answer to that is no. Because at that time, as far as the Pope was concerned, the ship is right where it's supposed to be because the Pope was the final authority over all things related to faith and practice. So there was no reason in his mind to have a conversation. Here's the deal. For us, in large part because of what I'm telling you about right here, here's kind of how we function related to authority. If you can imagine three umbrellas up here over me, one large one, and then under that a medium one, then under that a small one. What Luther was bumping up against is the church at that time said our big umbrella of authority is our leaders, the Pope, other leaders of the church. The next tier of authority is our traditions. And then underneath that is scripture. And what Luther was arguing is, hey, guys, we have it backwards. The big umbrella, final authority is supposed to be scripture. And, and then maybe traditions and then maybe our leaders. But, but that's not what the Pope was after at that time. The Pope was the final authority. What he said was considered to be perfectly true perfectly holy, could not be wrong. So Rome just says to Luther, zip it. Knock off this foolishness and this craziness. And Luther comes back and he essentially says, I can't do that because Scripture is my big umbrella. Scripture is my highest authority. Not, not man, not even the church, not even the traditions of the church, not even the Pope. Well, the Pope's not taking that, right? So three years later, snail mail was really slow, right? So three years later, he issues a decree, a decree condemning Martin Luther, claiming anathema. In other words, Martin Luther is not saved. He's going to go to hell. That's, that was the decree. He, he just told Martin Luther where to go in the decree, thinking he had the authority to do that. And he went on to say in his decree that all the writings of Luther were to be collected and burned. Now, if you're curious what Luther, this passionate monk, does with that decree, he burned it. <laughs> um, kind of ironic. And if all that's not enough, there were many people who wanted to kill Luther. And so people are trying to protect him and to save his life. And long story short, he ends up standing trial. He's in front of all of the leaders of the church at that time. And man, the pressure is on. And they're telling Luther, you have to recant. In other words, take back, denounce everything you've been teaching, everything you've been preaching, everything you've been writing, and you line up with the rest of us or you're out. And out probably meant you're going to be burned at the stake. You're going to be executed. Luther knows that. And so here he is standing in that moment. What is he going to do? History records what he said. Here's part of it. He said, Since your most serene majesty and your highness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even into inconsistency with themselves. If then... I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture 
or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. And when he said that, he probably expected, I'm going to get burned at the stake now. He didn't, thankfully. But what I want you to understand is that his initial debate with the church was about salvation. It was about how to be forgiven of sin. That was the initial debate, but it became about something else. It became about ultimate authority. Who has the final say? Who has the final word? Who's the big umbrella? Who's all the rest of the umbrellas? Can there be two big umbrellas? And Luther's going, no, there can only be one big umbrella. And that's going to be scripture. It's going to be the word of God. So what is the ultimate authority? Because of Luther and many other people like him who stood up to that power on the truth of God's word. Today, we happen to be Baptist. We came out of that. We're Protestants today. There's Methodists, there's Presbyterians, there's Assemblies of God. And, and we've all erred at different ways along the journey as well. All right. None of us have batted a thousand in this journey in this fallen world. No doubt about that. But what is clear is that through people like Luther and other reformers like him, I believe what they did, what God did through them is they kind of returned the church back to where it was 1,200 years earlier, to where its message was the message of the gospel. Its message was about a personal relationship with God. Sinners having sin taken away through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the world as we know it today, literally, is as it is because of what happened 500 years ago. Because 500 years ago, the church lost its grip on the world. And so today, a lot has changed. For example, today, even our Catholic friends, they read the Bible in their own language. Well, 500 years ago, they weren't allowed to do that. The Pope had said they couldn't do that, but now they can do that. And don't forget, I think we take it for granted that we have the Bible in our own language, but many people gave their lives to break the Pope's decree, to break the King's decree, to have the Bible in their own language, and they died because of it. So don't take that, that for granted. Other good things happen too. Like today, we're having a church service in English. You can understand it. You, you might have fallen asleep, but if you were awake, you could understand what I'm saying in today's history class. But that wasn't true 500 years ago. They, it was just a fast mass in Latin, and you didn't know what was happening. Another cool thing that's happened since then is today we sing songs together as a congregation. But 500 years ago in the church, there was no congregational singing like that. That's why we sing a song today, A Mighty Fortress. The original hymn by that name was written by Martin Luther. He wrote that because he, was, he wanted to write songs that when the church came together to hear the gospel, they could sing. And they could worship God together through those songs. But here's the greatest thing that happened 500 years ago through what has been called now the Protestant Reformation. The greatest thing that happened is that the true gospel was recovered. 
the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. See, Satan in the early church, he couldn't stop the gospel. But then what he tried to do is bury it under centuries of politics and dead religion. But you cannot bury the power of the gospel. The gospel and the power of the gospel is still saving lives, is still transforming hearts today. And so this movement called the Protestant Reformation, it really kind of revolved around five important truths. And these are what I want to focus on for this entire month. They're called the five solas, S-O-L-A-S. And before I tell you about that, let me tell you this. I want to be clear about this. We don't believe the five solas because we're Protestants. We don't believe the five solas because we don't want to be Catholics. Has nothing to do with that. We believe the five solas because we find the truth of the five solas in the Word of God. And we want to cover that this month. So what does sola mean? Sola is a Latin word that means alone. Like solo flight or singing a solo in the choir, right? So alone, that's an important word. And here are the five solas. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our highest authority. Sola tu, sola gratia. Grace alone is our only hope of salvation. Sola fide, faith alone. Faith is our only way of salvation. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone is the provider of our salvation. And sola de gloria, for the glory of God alone. All this is not for the glory of man, not even for the glory of the church. It's for the glory of God and the glory of God alone. 500 years ago, the church would have said, well, we believe the scripture. 500 years ago, the church would have said, we believe in grace. We believe in faith. We believe in Christ. And the Catholic Church still says those things today. But the reformers make this distinction. They, they would look at that and say, but you, you, you're missing one word. The word alone. You, you don't believe in Scripture alone. You don't believe in grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. You have to do other things, add other things, believe other things, accept other things in addition to that. So that word sola is all the difference, not scripture plus, scripture alone, not grace plus, all these things you do, grace alone, faith alone, not faith plus, all these other things, faith alone, Christ alone, not Christ plus, just Christ alone. Okay, that's my intro for the whole sermon series this month. And that leaves me with very little time now to unpack the first sola today, sola scriptura. And that's okay because I've already addressed a lot of that in the sermon itself today, the idea, the truth of sola scriptura. It's also okay, I think, because if you're sitting here wondering, well, why would scripture, why would you make that your greatest and final authority in your life? Because I watched this show on the History Channel one time and they said, you're not supposed to trust the Bible because people mess with it and it's not reliable. I preached that sermon about eight weeks ago here. So if you missed it, go back and check it out. I devoted a whole Sunday to that. Y'all remember that Sunday? 
God, I don't know why I do what I do. Y'all have like the memory of a gnat. I pour my guts out Sunday to Sunday and you don't remember none of it. Does anybody remember that Sunday? Okay, thank you for lying in church now. I am encouraged by your bearing false witness. So thank you for that. I think it was um, week two in that series, Worldview and Focus. So I dealt with that a lot then. So I'm not gonna sweat. I don't have a whole lot of time today on Sola Scriptura, okay? But I am putting it first and here's why. Because for the reformers, for Luther, Sola Scriptura was the first domino that fell. And when that one fell, the rest of the dominoes fell behind it. See, here's the thing. Once you realize that Scripture is my big umbrella, that means every part of my life. Listen to me, church, because we are in bondage to Bible Beltism. Everybody in the Bible Belt loves the Bible. Lost people going to hell, they love the Bible. They own Bibles. I'm not talking about loving the Bible today. I'm talking about putting the Bible where it belongs. Big umbrella over my life. Therefore, recognizing there is not any part of my life, no matter how small, no matter how seemingly insignificant it may be, there is nothing about me that does not fall beneath the authority of the Word of God. It has the final say over all of my life, that I must live and submit and be surrendered to the word of God over my life. I don't get to step out and go, yeah, well here I do what I wanna do or I do what my friends tell me to do. I'm gonna go with my heart, I'm gonna go with my gut. This is my preference. No, I wanna stand alone on the word of God. Remember that, the B-I-B-L-E, cute song, great truth, right? So that's what we're talking about. We wanna live submitted and surrendered to the word of God in totality, remaining submitted and surrendered to it, obedient to it, even if it's gonna cost me, just like it cost Luther and so many other people throughout time. So let me give you some quick take-home notes. Sola Scriptura defined. Scripture is our supreme authority alone. There's no, not two big umbrellas, one, it's scripture. It's our supreme authority for what we believe and how we live. What we believe and how we live. You say, why? Why is that? Because here's what the Bible says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture, all, is breathed out by God. This is from the lungs of God. This is the word of God. I want to live my life beneath what has come from the lungs of God, the truth of God, the power of God, the revelation of God. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God, the person of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Here's another one. Write this down. Scripture is our supreme authority because it is the word of God. This is not man's ideas about God. This is God's word to man about God. It's God's word to us. It's God's word over us. That's what this is. You might say, but I thought God was our supreme authority. I thought Jesus is our supreme authority. And you're saying his word is. Well, there's no way that you pit God and the word of God against each other, right? Like this, my mama would tell me at nine o'clock, I want your teeth brushed, homework done, and you're behind in the bed. Well, that was mama's word 
but it was connected to mama. Because I know mama, I'm going to do what mama said. God's word is connected to God. Because I know God, I want to do what God has said. How do I know what God has said? He's revealed it through his word to me. I know who he is. He's my king, right? He's my Lord. And so I want to obey his word. I want to obey his law. I want to obey his decrees. Here's what we're going to do. See, tell me if I'm the only guy in the room that does this. Sometimes y'all make me feel like a weirdo. I just want y'all to know that. I, I just want y'all to know. Like I come to church and y'all are like, y'all got it all together. And I'm the loser up here going, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm jacked up, man. I struggle. And y'all are like, yeah, man. Phonies, bunch of phonies. Tell me if you struggle with this. I struggle with this. Setting aside God's word and choosing to live by my preferences. Setting aside God's word and choosing to go with my gut choosing to go with my heart, setting aside the word of God and, and kind of doing a public opinion poll. Where, where, where are the rest of the people flowing, right? That, that's what we tend to do. Listen, I'm telling you, Roger, we need firmer ground to stand on than opinion polls. We need firmer ground to stand on than my gut, than my heart, than my instinct. We need a greater authority that is consistent and constant over our lives than all those other things that are just simply shifting sand. And the word of God is that to us. The never changing, perfect, eternal word of God. Now, listen. Sola Scriptura doesn't mean that the Bible is our only authority. There's a lot of authorities in this life that God has called us to submit to. My children submit to me. I'm their father. I have authority over them. I submit to the congregation at Grace Life. You have authority over me. At the same time as your pastor, biblically, I also have authority over you. We kind of share this mutual sort of relationship, right? When that state trooper pulls me over. Don't let that happen, Lord. He's got authority over me there in that place. My, the, 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 the mayor, the governor, the president. So Sola Scriptura is not the Bible is your only authority. It is the Bible is your final source of authority. I'm going to obey those in authority over me unless they're asking me to do something that goes against what my final authority says. If they do that, then I must obey God rather than man. Like Luther did, for example. I had a student tell me not too long ago, this student, he, he follows Jesus. He loves the Lord. His dad doesn't. And this young man was going out on a date with a girl. And his dad stopped him and put a little square package in his hand and said, put this in your wallet. I expect you to use this tonight. And the young man told me, he said, dad wasn't like suggesting it. Dad was telling me he would be disappointed if I didn't have a relationship that night with that girl that you're only supposed to have within a marriage relationship. And that night, that young man chose to obey God rather than to obey his dad. The young man chose to live by sola scriptura as his final authority. I have a friend that, man, he is moving in the right direction in his organization to a very successful place. But recently he told me, I don't know that I can continue to walk that out because at the top, 
at the top of the organizational pyramid there, what they have this game that they play, that whatever they say goes, whatever they say to celebrate, you celebrate. Whatever they say to champion, you champion. And not only will they be asking me to do that, but they will be asking me to enforce that upon other people as well. And he said, I'm not going to be able to walk that path. He was choosing sola scriptura. God's word is going to be my final authority. So I'm asking you this morning, is that true for you today as you sit here? Is the ground beneath your feet the unshifting, unchanging word of God? Is the big umbrella over your life that you live by, is it the word of God or is it something else? You can't embrace for your life what's not a part of your life. You can't be a healthy and productive follower of Jesus if you're not consistently interacting with the Word of God in your life. I just wonder how many moments in this past week did you spend just sitting before God in His Word, desiring to hear from Him, to meet with Him, so that you might follow Him and obey Him. Listen, the strength of your faith is directly connected to the Word and your interaction with it. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If your faith is weak, your interaction in the Word is weak. If your faith is strong, it's reflective that your interaction with God's Word is strong. Let me give you two challenges today as we close. Interact with the Word of God as much as you can, as long as you can, as often as you can. Read it, listen to it, taught, preached, meditate on it, memorize it, hide it in your heart that you might not sin against God. Secondly, see Jesus on every page. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible. I'm not impressed if you can name off all the kings of the northern kingdom and all the kings of the southern kingdom and say which ones are good or bad. If you're not encountering Jesus looking for and expecting and interacting with Jesus in the pages of Scripture, you're missing the whole point. All of this is to reveal Jesus to us, the one who saved us and the one that we say we're following. I love this moment in Luke chapter 24 where Jesus has been raised from the dead and nobody's really believing that yet. And even his disciples and two of them, they've left the upper room. They're going home to Emmaus with their tails tucked trying to make sense of this. And then just to mess with them a little bit, Jesus shows up and starts walking on the road with them and they don't realize it's him. And here's what happens. They tell him about everything that's happened over the weekend, right? To him. He's like, "Uh uh-huh. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And watch this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Bible says starting with Moses. If you start with Moses in the Bible, do you know where you start? You start in Genesis. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus did Bible overview with these two disciples. And he started with Genesis and he went all the way through the prophets. And he says, it's all about me. Read everything you read in the Bible to see Jesus. If you don't, you're just getting knowledge. Knowledge is no good. It's just going to puff you up. But you follow Jesus 
page after page, chapter after chapter, verse after verse. I loved what the rabbis of old would say. They would say, follow your rabbi so closely that you get covered in the dust of his sandals. That's the way we ought to come to God's word. I want to be following Jesus through these pages and encountering Jesus and seeing Jesus. I just want to get dusty, man, as I follow him. Last Sunday, one of our 12th grade girls here at church, she rededicated her life to Christ during the morning service. And I didn't know it till afterwards. And so that night, me and her family, we sat down to talk about that and pray together and had a good conversation. And she said, Pastor Joel, here's the thing. I just don't enjoy reading my Bible. I went, you know what? Me either. All right, here's your, here's your chance to be honest one more time. Any of y'all just admit, say, a lot of times I just don't enjoy reading my Bible. I ain't going to tell you, Mama. You holy rollers. Chuck, I do. Sometimes it's a struggle. It's a struggle. It don't hold my attention. I get distracted. I follow. I don't want to. The desire's not there. And so this girl's looking at me going, Pastor Joel, how do I fix that? And I said, well, here's what I know. And I try to practice. But here's what I know. You got to just do it. There's no quick, like, sugar-coated answer, like, ha magic. You have to do it. We just came back from a quick trip to Gatlinburg. Shannon had a little work trip, just two quick days. Me and the two little kids tagged along. I had two goals, have as much fun with my kids as I can and eat as much as I can. And I'm here to report I was successful. I ate the log cabin pancake house and I ate the apple barn and I ate flapjacks and I sampled everything. I mean, like I was that guy that just feasted off fudge and beef jerky. I mean, I came back. They knew my first name. I don't want to buy nothing. I'm just back to sample. <laughs> Let me try that ostrich right there, you know. So here's the thing I know with my physical appetite, with your physical appetite, the more you take in, the less hungry you are. I mean, it got to where I just. Right. Spiritually, your spiritual appetite's opposite of that. The more you ingest spiritually, the hungrier you get. And the reason some of you aren't hungry today is because you're waiting to get hungry to ingest the spiritual food. And if you keep waiting to get hungry to ingest it, you're never going to ingest it. You just got to dive in and you got to start walking. Muscle through it. And, and, and your, your spiritual belly is going to start to stretch and you're going to get hungrier. And you're going to stay hungrier. But some of you today, your challenge is not to read it. Your challenge is to obey it. Because you'd sit in here acting like you've got it all together and like, oh, yeah, man, big umbrella in my life. That's me. But that's not what your life says. Your life tells a different story. Your life tells a story of there is a consistent pushing of the word of God aside and going with your preference. Going with the flow going with the crowd. And today I'm just saying, hey, church, it's today the day that we bow our knee before the Lord and say, God, let us learn from history. Because what happened 500 years ago to a person could happen today to this person. What happened 500 years ago to an organization could happen to this organization. If today we don't bow our knee before the Lord and say, God, I want to live surrendered. I want to live submitted and yielded to the authority of God that he has revealed through his word. I've tried living out here and there is death, not life. Things die 
out here. Hopes die and life dies and relationships die and dreams die. But God, this is where life is and joy is. God, that's where I want to be. So God, help us to do that today. We bow before you. And God, I'm asking that in this place today, we wouldn't talk a talk, but God, that we would walk the walk. That today, fresh and new, we would surrender ourselves, God, to your authority, the authority of your word over our lives. That in that, we would find ourselves walking with Jesus. Some today may be far away. God, bring them back. And God, some today may never have trusted you to save them from sin. And God, maybe today, just like with the young man last week, maybe today, somebody would give their life to you today, Lord. So have your way, God, in our lives. And I would just simply ask, God, that you would not let us walk out of here unchanged. What a wasteful hour this would have been if we walk out the same. God help us in Jesus' name.